0: Welcome to another episode of Work in Programming. Uh, This week, I am with Guillermo Rauch. Uh, Guillermo, thank you so much for for joining me. Um, Would you mind giving like a a quick uh, introduction?
1: Sure. Um, I'm the CEO and co-founder of Vercel, and I'm the co-creator of Next.js, which is our open source framework uh, for building and deploying uh, Jamstack websites and applications.
0: Yeah, and uh Next.js is obviously, I I would say it's like the it seems like it's the number one uh framework for building React applications now. Like at my work, um, we do a little bit of Gatsby work now for for Jamstack as well, but uh yeah, NextJS is definitely it seems like it's um it's kind of taken over because of the whole uh you know the serverless capabilities and being able to do like dynamic data as well. Um so yep. Yeah. Uh, you know, the,
1: the react space is obviously uh, as a whole growing really, really fast. Mm-hmm. Um, we've been lucky to, you know, really have been one of the first frameworks that was strongly opinionated on this idea of frameworks should, you know, give you all these basics like routing built in CSS mm-hmm. built in data fetching built in, um, another interesting thing that we did that I think has helped a lot is like multiple pages built in you know like funny enough like mm-hmm. the very own create react app which kind of came out at the at about the same time that we're about to get Next.js out mm-hmm. with the substantial difference that we had already been dogfooding Next.js for a year by the mm-hmm. time we we, um, we put it out um, so even create react app had this idea of like oh it's a single page And that's it, right? And, like, we had this need of, like, funny enough, I always tell the stories, like, well, we had this need of two pages. (laughs) (laughs) And the the example is we had our terms of service. And Mm -hmm. literally, this is how our startup, you know, started. You know, like, we had three pages. Homepage, uh, enter your email to be notified of what we're going to be working on. Mm -hmm. Um, And then we had the privacy policy and the terms of services. You know, we're taking a user data. uh, We have to have it.
2: Mm
1: -hmm. even though it's just an email, right? And um, uh, I was like, wow, all this information, all these static pages are now Mm -hmm. going into the bundle that Webpack is outputting. Mm -hmm. And when Create React App came out, imagine that you're working on a thing, right? And like you see the very authors of this React component that is so, uh, you know, that's so important to you and to your creation and you see Mm -hmm. them put out a quote-unquote competitor to your idea, mm-hmm. well, you'd, you'd probably be, at the very least, you know, a right. little shocked, worried, oh, is is yeah. it's I wasted all this, you know, I wasted this entire year working on this. But for us, it was the opposite, it was like, oh, wow. You know, they're putting it out and we actually disagree strongly on this, this, <laughs> and that. And mm-hmm. we thought, we already lived through this. Uh, we already tried to have, you know, that bootstrapping mechanism that it was featuring at the time. Oh, we already tried and discarded that. And, and not because it's bad, but like, oh, we, you know, kept working on our product and so on mm-hmm. and iterating with the framework. And we found that, you know, oh, you can do more and you can do more and you can do more. Um, so what we did is at that point I told uh, one of my co-founders now, Yuki, it's like, hey, like, um, let's just take this stuff that we've been using internally and, and productize it. Mm -hmm. And that's how Next.js was born. And, you know, it was featuring all these ideas that really resonated with people that were um, working on, you know, products that needed these things to be built in. And, like, they didn't want to go shopping for options. Like, Mm -hmm. they didn't want to shop for a router. They wanted to shop for a CSS solution and so on and so forth. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, you know, I think that's kind of been our, our advantage is we got obsessed with this idea of like react should power the entirety of the product and website mm-hmm. that we're creating um and and we kind of like you know had a little bit of head start and then we had some strong opinions and it's worked out really well so far
0: yeah yeah it's it's amazing that like it's kind of funny that like it's really funny that you you launched right around the same time as create react App. um yeah. <laughs> like i remember because like so like to me like one of the the most amazing things about react when it came out was that you know it wasn't like one of these frameworks that forced you to totally do everything their way and you could kind of pick and choose your favorite technologies for each thing totally. but then it's exactly like you're saying it's it's the, the the first like week to two weeks of any project is like picking your framework totally. and setting it up and reassembling the same pieces over and over again
1: And also it fit, React at the time, fit the narrative of the time, right? Like Mm -hmm. Facebook was also going through their own incremental adoption of the technology. Uh, uh, You know, I was sharing this with my team the other day. Like, it's interesting to think that, you know, no technology gets a free pass. It always has to be evaluated, you know, marketed, presented uh, pros and cons, and at the time, React was going through that process, right? Like, of course, they already had sufficient buy-in that they were motivated to open source it because you know, they have high standards and they wanted to promote a tool that they liked. Um, but it was still going through that process of like, how far can this React thing go, you, you know? Mm-hmm. And uh, I remember for me, like a decisive moment uh, was, oh, wow, like Instagram.com, which launched on web is entirely powered by this thing, you know? So yeah. like the trajectory was react of course, was a V in MVC at the time mm-hmm. and it was powering very specific components and some were still, you know, for Facebook in the legacy stack and some the new ones were creating as react and it was going through that trajectory. Yeah. But where we leapfrogged was, well, yes, that makes sense for that kind of incremental adoption for Facebook. Mm -hmm. and i'm sure also for incremental adoption within you know you had a wordpress website and you wanted to add some cool uh you know a reactive component like Mm -hmm. drop react in but then we're like looking ahead it's like yeah but sure why don't you start with the assumption of react from the get-go and that's why we kind of started working on next and and you know we our vision was components Mm
2: -hmm. are
1: such an amazing primitive and abstraction that you know, it doesn't matter what you're building, you probably want to build it with React, right? Like you, mm-hmm. I remember uh, one of my um, kind of like popular tweets at the time was like, it seems to me that we haven't gotten he- heard about the end of React nor even the beginning of React yet because there's so many more places where this component abstraction would, will make a lot of sense, right? And, mm-hmm. and that kind of predated React VR existing Inc., which is a project for using React from the command line. Like, there's so many places that you can put it because fundamentally it was a leapfrog in the programming model, yeah. and that's what I think makes it so strong. Because the component is just you know how people think. You know, I, I've also said you know React is the Lego for adults,
2: mm-hmm. and
1: <laughs> uh, and you know like it is good to think of the of the of the world that way. You know we've seen the co-evolution of React with, with design systems. They've mm-hmm. kind of gone hand in hand uh, with, with the ability to like do the work once and then componentize it and then distribute it. Mm-hmm. Um, when Hooks first came out, I got really excited because I could, I, I kind of, for me, that was the moment where I, I foresaw that, well, now we can componentize data and, and mm. functionality in a way that we couldn't before, right? Like mixins mm-hmm. have failed, um, you know, copying and pasting onto a component class <laughs> prototype doesn't quite do it. Mm-hmm. So how do you, you know, get a hook for data fetching or a hook that encapsulates a behavior like subscribing to a certain event, um, you know? And that, that to me was like another really, really massive win for rigs. Like, oh, another like Lego bricks for behavior. And the yeah. other day, even like, you know, I found uh, this interesting uh, company that provides a gateway for uh, blockchain and they were distributing their API as uh, React hooks. So, like, it was that kind of confirmation it's like, wow, like, think about 10 years ago, you were presenting your new idea to the world and your hello world could have been, you know, curl and here's the API. And that was certainly true for companies like Stripe. Now you're, you're presenting some like cool, like data binding or, or data solution or API layer and whatever, mm-hmm. and the abstraction has been risen. So now you can, you, you can talk about, oh, here's my hook that does mm-hmm. this thing. You know, like if Firebase came out today, it would be selling you on, here's the hook, right? right. For subscribe and data changes.
0: Right. And then yeah, I guess, uh, at that point you could kind of connect to any API and it totally. looks almost exactly the same. I mean, you just get your yeah. data back and you might totally. have some broadcast events or another totally.
1: handling. And what I like about hooks too, is that they almost look like um, imperative data fetching code, like A equals get B and mm-hmm. then use it immediately. But that hook is re-entrant. So actually it's not even a one-off, you know, function call. It's a function mm-hmm. call that then gets re-executed in the future if the data changed. So now we're approaching the time where like React has actually completed a vision and implementation that live up to their name, right? Like now React truly is more reactive in a way, uh, which, which is fascinating.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting how it's kind of evolved over time because yeah, I remember like when it came out with Mixins, um, everything was kind of just implied. So you'd add a Mixin and you just get some sort of behavior And you kind of guess as to where it came from.
1: Totally. Like, what is this going to do?
0: It it merges this mix in, and what are the consequences of that? Mm -hmm. And then it's almost taken like the complete opposite approach. Now it's gone, it went from that to life cycles on a class. And then now it's like, screw life cycles. We've got a, we're going to subscribe to some data, and we're just going to render out whenever it changes. Yeah. Yeah.
1: And, and, And there's a story of like React really like, evolving so fast based on very interesting product requirements that Mm -hmm. Facebook had and other and a lot of other people from the community had that it almost feels like react is moving faster than the language can keep up right like Mm -hmm. if you think about hooks well you know hooks are doing exactly what's necessary for that abstraction and yet the language in some ways fights against it and there's like now you know rules of hooks so Mm -hmm. react in its own has always been so product centric and so like let's create cool things centric that you know first of all jsx was not part of the language Mm -hmm. it got added in now hooks well they're just function calls Yeah, but you know they they bend the language in this way another way suspense is the same like it throws promises who does that right Mm -hmm. and all these things come from like well we it turns out that people don't like to see pages flickering in 20 different ways and see 100 spinners and in fact by the way the spinners also take up resources and so do the skeletons like why not coalesce all this you know async io and Mm -hmm. and then they were like okay like how do we do this oh like um uh, you a second on the front row Oh, raise your hand oh throw a promise okay let's do that you know what i mean like it's more like uh it's a very interesting product focused um um idea and ideation mm-hmm. uh and i i've always been a, a really big fan of that and honestly i think that's what keeps react so interesting and relevant to people
2: yeah
1: um and as well as next js like today uh we're wrapping up a release uh, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna share it because like I, I think by this time the podcast will be out yeah. Um, which we're incorporating React Refresh. Um, okay. And to my knowledge, this is the first framework that outside of Facebook, because Facebook has it internally, um, it, uh, it's uh, React's ability to do hot module replacement in basically real time as you edit your code. Mm. But also it retains the state. So you can use it to you know, refresh code while working on complex flows,
2: you know, okay. multi-stage
1: forms, um, you know, all kinds of client-side like state, navigation, uh, animation. And and one of the things, you know, like this is an invention mm-hmm. that is now possible after React aligned all these ducks of, you know, hooks and how do we manage the state? And, you know, um, how do we manage uh, components? Now, oh, now this becomes possible. Making the developer experience so good that you know your edits feel like they're reflecting in real time. So, in some ways, you know, this is what keeps React uh, so relevant. Is that it's been a few years now, and and still, you know, we're working on on just cutting edge capabilities, both for developers and users.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's interesting. Like I, 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 it's it's almost like every time I, I talk to somebody new, I learn something new about about React. Um, absolutely <laughs> yeah it's it's amazing like there's just so many uh new developments all coming at the same time uh yeah one of the uh, oh sorry yeah. uh one of the uh the questions that someone from my work actually wanted me to bring up uh was kind of around the uh next js um the move towards having uh static pages um mm-hmm. and kind of uh they're they're curious about like well, like what's the intent? Like what's the what's the long-term goal for next? Is it is it kind of moving into all of those spaces, or is it going to kind of stick with uh dynamic data? I guess the the static data gives it a or static pages kind of gives it a great uh, competition against uh, Gatsby in a way, I guess.
1: Yeah, uh the our take on it is um there there are two types of pages that you build. Mm-hmm. Um, one type of page that Fits the model of eventual consistency, mm-hmm. meaning that when you make a read, it's okay to be slightly behind, if you're going to get performance and availability benefits. I don't want to get too much into like distributed systems nerdom, but mm-hmm. basically this is the result that um, Amazon and many other you know uh, pioneers in large scale distributed systems came to the conclusion of. Mm-hmm. Um, and this model of you can be slightly behind fits, fits a number of domains extremely well, like mm-hmm. marketing pages, e-commerce, uh, blogs, and so on and so forth. In a way, to me, static is an optimization.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, if, if, if a page can be made static, it should be made static because now we can make copies of that page throughout the world Mm-hmm. more efficiently. I recently wrote a blog post in which I call this a static hoisting. It means mm-hmm. if Next.js know what parts of your project, what pages are static, we can put them by your visitor ahead of time. So I don't right. think anyone in the world would want to miss out on an optimization like this, which is just fantastic. Yeah. And what, what Next.js is giving you is now the ability to decide on a per page basis how much of that data you want to inline in the page and convert into markup, right? So
2: mm-hmm.
1: our very own website, Vercel.com, it's all static pages with mm-hmm. different levels of um, client-side dynamism baked in. So for example, mm-hmm. Vercel.com slash blog uses mm-hmm. the, the static data fetching hooks, which are get static props and get static paths to get data at build time. Mm-hmm. Now, NetJS is already going uh, in the territory of incremental static site generation. Yeah, so we already expose the hooks for you to add more pages later on, and also revalidate pages that already exist, which is quite mm-hmm. fascinating. Because if your data changes uh, yeah. again, like the edge already has the previous version, so everything is fine mm-hmm. until it receives until the new one has been created correctly, right? Right. And that provides also, uh, that's why I make always the distinction between performance and availability. Well, Mm -hmm. certainly if you can make a page static and push it to the edge, it's going to be closer to the user and the edge is not going to have to travel to origin to retrieve the page. Mm -hmm. No one would agree, considering the speed of light, that that's not a performance benefit. But in terms of availability, it's also a benefit because of that eventual consistency trade-off that I just mentioned, right? Like, Mm -hmm. let's say that at this very given time, I update the stock of a product, and I say, well, it's now out of stock, Mm -hmm. right? I have to now produce a page, generate it, and distribute it to every edge. Mm -hmm. If meanwhile, traffic is coming to the page, I want to serve the page. I don't want to go to the brain origin database just to, like, exactly at that given time, block all rendering, render a white page until we get the very, very latest version of the data. Mm -hmm. And what Jamstack allows, which is quite fascinating, is that if you do have to make what I call strongly consistent reads, and obviously I don't just call it that, but in Mm distributed systems, if you need to read the very, very, very latest version of data and no edge caching can ever be afforded, what you do is now you transfer that to clients IJS Um, data fetching calls with, for example, React hooks. Mm -hmm. So that gives a quite pretty compelling model, right? So the vast majority of your pages exist at the edge, they get downloaded instantly, Mm -hmm. and then you can also uh, attach to them magical JS code Mm -hmm. that can, you know, do more, register events, and so on. And, and, And that kind of completes this vision of like, what i call react at the edge right like mm. most of the markup can already be pre-generated and then react can kick in on the client side to do the last mile uh, sort of improvements on the page
0: mm-hmm.
1: and now how do
3: you,
0: uh, yeah. sorry just a quick um so the yeah, what you're uh rendering so let's say you want some static data but you want to refresh it um how do you prevent say the blog from from rendering and then flickering and then loading completely new data um, oh, we always
1: we always render a consistent version of the page, right? So like mm-hmm. if we don't have the JS and the HTML of that page yet, we render the previous version, right? So right. Um, when it, when I speak of revalidating a page, I mean both things. So sure. um, one thing that we're working on right now that is pretty exciting is we're gonna let uh, CMS providers or any or any developer that has any data fetching system to uh, basically identify which pages are linked because they're both representing the same, uh, let's call it datum. So let's say that you have, you know, your blog index and a certain blog page that both have, uh, are rendering both the same blog post, right? Mm -hmm. We're going to let you, and and this will probably be abstracted away with, um, with data fetching utilities in the future, but we're going to basically let you push both pages at once or none so that you can avoid um, basically parts of your website being
0: revalidated by other parts not being revalidated. Mm. Interesting. And then I guess you so if you if you don't get both of them then you would render out the old version Correct. of both.
1: Correct. And, and this this is very and, and again the, the trade off there can also be uh, left up to the developer. This is very similar to how CDNs work that expose what's called surrogate keys mm. where different parts of the cache can be invalidated by issuing an invalidation against that key. But what we found is, you know, front developers don't want to think about in terms of like, oh, there's a CDN and there's caching headers, and there's data that. Mm-hmm. It's much simpler to think about, well, I'm doing data fetching for this page. And uh, as a result, it's almost like I'm subscribed to any data uh, piece of this page is changing and then Mm -hmm. being able to revalidate those pages later on. So right now, Next.js already has support, and we put out an RFC that we have uh, some great comments from the community uh, for what we call background revalidation, which means when you visit a page, it's always served from cache, and then in the background, we check if that page has changed. So
2: what,
1: what this does for a lot of people, and we have lots of production customers using it, is it allows them to basically, you know, adopt Jamstack for very, very large scale websites today, right? Mm-hmm. They don't have to wait for, you know, CMSs to expose uh, webhooks and like all this uh, code to be written and so on. So mm-hmm. we, we've had, uh, we use that also at, uh, for it has been really great. Uh, so basically you, you arrive to a static page and then in the background is like, oh, uh, let's try to generate it again. We only do it at most once, which means it's very, very cheap on the on the back end
2: mm.
1: uh, and then if that um, page generation yields different HTML, we update the edge so people that you know would wait sometimes forty minutes for a build uh, to yield all the static pages at once are now seeing yeah. that it takes you know a hundred milliseconds to update and, a static
0: page and I guess these incremental builds they're not so much controlled so like for instance, if I'm using a Gatsby site um, I know that they're working on get incremental builds now, but if if I were to try and render out the site with just standard Gatsby, I'm rendering out all of the static pages and then I'm pushing those to the CDN and then those have to like revalidate. I'm guessing um, with, with Next when you're doing this, is it dynamically happening like at the server correct. side or is it happening at rebuilds? Correct, rebuild? okay. correct.
1: So it happens at built-in for the number of pages that you want to generate. Mm-hmm. And this is where it also it's important to draw a distinction here, right? Because like if you have, Uh, you know, tens of millions of pages or products, you Mm -hmm. might not really want to like build every single one of them, (laughs) every deploy preview or every, maybe maybe you want to do it for production, right? Maybe not. So Next.js already, uh, and this is in production, already gives you the ability to say via the get static paths function, Mm -hmm. how many of them you want to do eagerly. So really what Next.js is doing is doing this dance between eager and lazy Mm -hmm. and having the developer have a voice or choice in which one to use and and how, right? We think that it very much depends on the uh, size of the website. It depends on like, you know, what your, uh, what affordances your data backends have, right? Because eager only works if your data backend supports hooks or streaming and so on, Mm -hmm. but that's not the reality for everybody. Uh, at the same time, we are going to a world where we know that you know all these data pipelines will be connected, and then we can sort of perfectly know when each page has to be rebuilt. Mm-hmm. But in the meantime, it's nice to have a fallback, right? Also, mm-hmm. notoriously, a lot in a lot of cases, events get lost. So it's nice that Next.js gives you this kind of sanity check that says, "Well, every five seconds, if the page is being visited, we can try recomputing it in the background and see if it's changed." So. Mm-hmm. If you compare that to SSR, you're thinking, you know, this is like a hundred times cheaper. And yet I have all the benefits of, you know, I don't have to reinvent the wheel. Like I can think about data fetching the way that I always think about, mm-hmm. about it. And um, yeah, you know, this is, this is kind of giving the developer that was using Next.js in the past and thought of it as, oh, it can only do SSR. Well, no, actually now you can do static and you can do incremental static. So. It's it's uh it's a very nice uh, kind of set of, of uh functionality that they have.
0: Yeah, it's it's very it's very cool because like I guess I've always thought of Next.js as the dynamic version, so the server-side rendering version of of anything else. But I guess being able to do both at the same time is is kind of the
1: Yeah, another great example they always give people is like why would you why would you want your you know, company's homepage to not be static, right? Like Mm -hmm. why would you put a server in between, even if you're using the fanciest CDN you could buy on the market, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Why would you make that CDN make a trip to origin to fetch, you know, welcome to my company, you know? Mm -hmm. And this is kind of what I was saying about like, put what I I always the expression, push to the edge a lot, Mm -hmm. is if we know it's a static, we can make so many awesome optimizations that, like again, re- reflect later on through the life cycle of your software being live and in production in just better performance and better availability. So I think it's, a, it's, a, it's kind of this, like as I mentioned, nature of the universe of there's different types of data, there's different types of pages. So what really played to our advantage was, again, that multi-page system, right? So Next.js can now say, oh, this page make, has no data requirements whatsoever. So when you run Next build, we just spit out HTML for that page. Mm-hmm. Then you can say, well, this other page needs data to be in line at build time. So when you run Next build, we get the data and then we spit out HTML. And now when you use a uh, hosting provider like Vercel, Vercel doesn't have to consider that Next.js is like, inside a black box, mm. you can take these outputs and place them ahead of time where they belong and where it's most beneficial for, for your visitors.
0: Mm. And would you say that Vercel is heavily optimized towards Next.js or, cause I noticed that it does, I mean, it hosts like Gatsby and I, I actually have a Gatsby site um, that I'm working on that's currently hosted on Vercel and it seems to work very yeah, well. I, I find it actually has to be uh, and bias, obviously, but I
3: find
1: this mm-hmm. chance to be a pioneering framework in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's giving people features that are quite innovative. But my my thing has always been like I want to make sure that other frameworks can benefit from those,
3: right? Mm-hmm.
1: So we're actually working with the next team right now, and I, I, you know, I, I, I obviously, haven't contributed that much. But every once in a while, I, you know, I tell them, oh, we're doing this, we're doing that. Oh, you have a functions API coming, that's really cool, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And, uh, and you know, I love that because these ideas are more of, you can think of them as slow level ideas, right? We're mm-hmm. talking about producing HTML, right? And, and yeah. putting, ne- putting it next to the visitor. Does it really matter what framework is doing that? <laughs> I don't think, I, I think that over long periods of time, it doesn't, we want to mm-hmm. be ready for that future. We want Next.js to continue to sort of be pioneering and give customers all this, Really innovative options and optimizations, uh, but you know I could see a future where uh, once once things become more stable with regards to like you know what are what are the fe- what is the feature set that defines a modern framework? You know, Next.js is a feature set that right now is being implemented by Nuxt. They don't quite have it yet. Once okay. things are more, you're you're gonna see that like all frameworks sort of catch up at one point, right? And they're all gonna <laughs> offer you pretty much the same things. Uh, even um, React, if you look at the React repo today, they're they're adding first-class data fetching functions to React itself, right? So, like, mm-hmm. things will become more normalized over time. And um, we want Vercel to sort of be this pioneering edge network that mm-hmm. is ready for this new breed of, frankly, I call it Jamstack frameworks. Mm-hmm. Because the distinction to be made between, you know, an old-school framework whose output was a process that lives inside a container. Mm -hmm. Well, to me, what defines a Jamstack framework is that now the output is HTML, JS and functions, Mm
3: -hmm. and those
1: can be very, very much optimized for edge delivery. And and that's kind of the big kind of wave that we're going to see. Like we're we're going to see new frameworks come in like Redwood, Blitz, and like all these newcomers that are exploiting these new categories of optimizations. That weren't possible before.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I, I I can see. So, do you think that there are sites that would not be like that would not be a benefit from being built in Next.js? I was, you know, I
1: always turn the question around to people because I'm like why? Like I said earlier, like why wouldn't your you know company's homepage to be a static page that is globally? replicated Mm -hmm. rather than you know your static page living inside a container living inside a process being streamed from that process Mm at a time and then remembering to like set the cache control correctly and Mm -hmm. so yeah even s3 access that that server that CloudFront connects to right so even Mm -hmm. though s3 is highly available you know there are very interesting optimizations that can be made in terms of your bucket existing in multiple places of the world right Mm -hmm. Um, And and they're certainly possible, right? Like if you spend enough time with AWS Primitives, Mm -hmm. you'll of course get to the same outcome, right? Like the question is like, do you really want to Uh, spend all the time working with those Primitives? (laughs) Um, But yeah, to answer your question quite directly, I think, you know, we've always thought of Next.js as this super versatile uh, uh, framework for building pages. That's Mm -hmm. why, you know, kind of our trademark is you start by having a pages directory and throwing in React components inside, and mm-hmm. each page maps to a URL. You know, I've always, I joke sometimes that we're not building a pass in terms of platform as a service, I always joke mm-hmm. we're building pages as a service, just <laughs> a, new, a new type of pass. So yeah. if it fits the definition of a web page, mm-hmm. you know, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be there. As mm-hmm. I mentioned earlier, I think components and React just fit the fit my personal mental model of the world and how to, mm. you know, combine things and uh, make things reusable and so on. Mm. is kind of like uh, uh, just de-building blocks of modern software. So that's why we work on XJS. We enjoy using it every day and, and, you know, we highly recommend it.
0: Cool, yeah. Yeah, I guess in a way, um, you're just kind of bundling together best practices. I mean, like I could work on a Create React app application and build like a single page app Um, but I could also just take that single page application and and put it into Next.js and still benefit.
1: Totally, yeah. That's how, uh, you know, uh, the kind of architecture that we follow for our very own uh, website. So like Mm -hmm. Slash is our homepage, Slash dashboard is fundamentally a single page application, right? Mm -hmm. And what's allowed, what that's allowed us to do is that we have the, now now it's coming back in, in vogue we have a monolith, quote unquote, right? And <laughs> I always say quote unquote because the build process breaks down that monolith into these independently optimizable outputs, right? Mm-hmm. So it's the opposite of a monolith. It's a super mega distributed, global worldwide edge network, mega not monolith. But okay, you start uh, working for Vercel tomorrow. You go to one repo and mm-hmm. you run next dev. You run yarn dev. <laughs> So oh, to you, you have the entirety of Ursula at your fingertips, right? Yeah. You can work on the design system. You can work on the blog. You can work on a marketing page. You can work on the contact form. You can work on the sales form. You can work on case studies. Mm-hmm. You can work on the dashboard. You can work on the logging system. You can work on the billing system. It's, yeah. it's a very, very nice way of working. Yep. And my, my take there is when you have a, a customer of your own business or even of your own blog, they go to company.com and they don't care that, you know, you, the architect decided that, well, this system is create React App and this other system is this and this other system is that. No, they, they end up having this like, what I find at least, they end up having this like disjointed experiences, almost mm-hmm. like you're putting out three products. But if you go and ask your customer, they think of your company as one thing. Oh, that's A.com. Oh, now I'm logged in. Oh, now I'm not logged in anymore. Oh, and like the buttons have changed. Oh, I guess they're working a new redesign, um, and, and and that's why Next.js was designed from the get-go with this kind of. It, it looks like a monolith, and mm-hmm. and, um, and I see it really just like it. It really makes teams more productive. That's that's always been my my observation. You know, like it. Mm-hmm. It, it gives people a global view of, of, of what they're working on, even though everyone develops their own specializations over time. Mm-hmm. Um, just having that awareness of, of what people are working on, and that very much mimics, you know, the way that kind of Facebook worked, mm-hmm. you know, before they open source React. So right. um, it, it's always been good to have kind of the model of the originating company of the, of the, of the framework to follow.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I guess it benefits, especially since, like, you know, they, they definitely did end up acquiring, like, a lot of talent just based on the fact that, you know, people can kind of work across teams and they can kind of, I guess, access. Yeah.
2: I'm,
0: I'm a big fan of
1: that. I'm a, I'm a really big fan. Of, I, there's this tweet by Sophie uh, from, uh, she was the ex-manager of the, uh, of the React team where, like, she's mm-hmm. like, you know, if you have the skill sets to work on a website, you probably have the skills to work on everything else, you know, as long as you have curiosity and, and the desire to like, you know, get involved and and learn. And I've seen that come true so many times where like, we're seeing it a lot with, uh, and I wrote about this in an essay that kind of became viral called Pure UI. We're seeing that too with like design, product design, design and and development becoming skills that are more and more closer together than ever been where, you know, a lot of designers today just want to be uh, involved, even with understanding how the implementation happens. And oh, mm-hmm. I'm designing this component in Figma, and it's gonna match this component in React. Yeah. And having that understanding, just you know, again, it's this global understanding of how the thing works and how it's gonna end up in in the end
0: user's screen. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems really interesting. Like, I if you've heard of like Framer X, for instance um there's yep. this big there's this idea at least of you know uh, a designer should be able to create a repository like a design and then they have their individual components kind of set up and then in theory you could just kind of export that from figma or whatever your design absolutely. Tool is. and
1: absolutely do, do
0: you have a do you have a, do you believe that like eventually we'll get to the point where uh let's say your design system lives inside of some sort of like design tool but if you update those assets or if you update the content or, or however you, you manage that, that gets immediately reflected on the, the front end and rebuilt? Or, or do you think you rather I that? think so. Yeah.
1: Um, and it's going to take a while. Mm-hmm. I think teams that buy into those systems from the get-go will have that ability much sooner because there's already systems that do this, right? So there are people that are hearing this and like, oh, I already got that. <laughs> because we, we already have the early innings of um, of those systems. I think mm-hmm. a lot of it, uh, one thing I'm particularly excited about is like, and this is kind of controversial, but I'm pretty excited about CSS. Okay. <laughs> I think, uh, you know, like, and just like regular CSS, I think it's a fantastic technology. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of people don't like it because it doesn't have power. It doesn't have a type system and so on. Mm-hmm. But that's, uh, that's the point to me. It's like, it's why I like static outputs. The static outputs are optimizable. CSS is very optimizable. The fact mm-hmm. that CSS is not like Turing complete is great. And, and, and similarly, another thing that I find is that CSS is really good at giving the developer the ability to tune things that the platform already provides in some way. Right. Mm-hmm. So like, um, when you rebuild a select widget from scratch uh, with React, you're subscribing to a world of pain Mm -hmm. and you're subscribing your user to a world of pain. And the pain has to deal with lots of code, uh, mismatched keyboard shortcuts across platforms, Mm -hmm. accessibility problems of all kinds, and so on and so forth. So the better option turns out to be, don't do it. So (laughs) just use a platform primitive, and guess what? You can use this super optimal styling system, CSS, mm-hmm. to, to customize that. So now if you if you kind of make that the invariant, that all you're going to be doing is like customizing things with, with CSS, mm-hmm. I think you end up with a system that could realistically be, um, you know, quite easy to implement because you're already using the very own browser's primitives mm-hmm. to do all the rendering and styling. And people are just manipulating basic CSS, mm. which is actually a really easy to pick up very fast and fluent language. Now, mm. the other thing that I'll say that is also a bit controversial, at least from some people that I've spoken to, is that I think that nothing will ever replace uh, unstructured creativity and ideation. And I actually prefer design tools that have no rules or understanding of layout whatsoever, Because I've opened files on Sketch or Figma that feel like I'm interacting with a programming language. If I'm interacting with a programming language, I'm just going to go to what I just described. I'm just going to go to like edit HTML and CSS, right? I know how to do it. I can open a web browser and do it. And I'm not even going to open a design tool that is not implemented as a part of a web browser. Mm -hmm. Because the web browser will always have, you know, no impedance mismatch between output and design. But I like the idea of just really fast ideation Mm -hmm. and moving the elements like I'm, you know, on a whiteboard. And that's what I see, you know, some something is going to some part of that will have to be retained. Mm -hmm. And I think that if you're too much in the camp that there's perfect synchrony between code and design, well, then the sign will slow down. Yeah, uh, and, and 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 the two things have to exist for successful product design. You have to have the liberty of no code, mm-hmm. and then you have to have the strict requirements and constraints of code. Um, right. It's kind of like just mo- different modes of thinking, right? Like you sometimes want to be super creative and like you know let the entire universe merge into a rainbow of uh, sound and color, and sometimes mm-hmm. you just want to be like, oh, okay, let's sit down, let's look at the bundle size, let's look at you know how many DOM nodes we have nested, and, and so on and so forth. So it's to me at least, it's different kinds of
2: thinking.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can see what you mean there, uh, especially with like uh, a lot of design tools. Like you know, say Figma, for instance. There's a lot of like flexibility there, and I guess if you tried to just directly export that to, to like the strictness of a web page, you wouldn't really benefit absolutely that absolutely. much. Yeah it's not going to work. Or even if you do make it work, then what you've
1: done is then you've turned Figma into the coding tool. And then if you turn Figma into the coding tool, then you lost the unconstrained creativity. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's just, you know, like this is a danger, right? It's like you have to decide, well, what mode am I in right now? And if it's the same tool, you can get into trouble, right? Mm -hmm. Like modes are, uh, are quite difficult to grok sometimes. Like as, as exhibited by people not being able to exit them.
0: <laughs> That's <is> very true. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, yeah, I, I think that, that um, like, it's kind of like the same uh, issue that people kind of have when they start hearing about design systems. Like I, I have a few friends that are designers for like say a bank or um, like, a tele, like a telecom community co- company. And um, you know, they had this idea that like, okay, you know, obviously they're gonna bring in design systems because everyone wants to be able to uh, normalize across all of their platforms and all of their sites and keep everything consistent. Mm-hmm. Um, but the immediate assumption is like, that's gonna limit creativity um, because all of a sudden yep, yep. Design designers are forced to fit in with a system and, and kind of stick with it. Um, but I've also heard the opposite from you know design managers yeah. who are running these teams <laughs> and they're saying you know we have a design system we can do pretty much anything we want and we're almost certain that it's going to work out um so it's, it's yeah kind of like a,
1: it's yeah. super tricky right like um you have to find the balance between how you know fast you can move with the existing primitives but also moving fast with primitives that don't exist and so that ends up being a matter of like retaining that freedom to constantly revisit assumptions, right? And not make this processes too rigid. And that's why I was mentioning that like, if you make the design tool too rigid, Mm -hmm. then you can get into trouble because the design tool has famously been the place where you weren't constrained by any of those rules that have been imposed by, you know, PR review and guidelines and design systems. And like a great example of this is that, you know, things that cannot be done with the current system, right? Like things that like, oh, you want that fly out, that image, blah, blah. Like if you just always, your starting point is the constraints of the code of the existing system, then nothing is possible. Mm -hmm. Now, if you kind of divide those two minds of like, well, this is what I want, you know, let's work, and find a way to do it, right? Like, uh, it, it's kind of, it reminds me a little bit about like some of the things that Apple has accomplished with some of their innovations in, in UI where, you know, it, those are not things that like you can use any tool to describe. You know, like the, the new cursor thing on the iPad, like, you know, mm-hmm. it's just, I could imagine even a conversation happening where like, oh, what if we just make it like smoosh and squish like this? And like, you know, you don't even have the words to explain it. And, and that's the thing. It's like, I, I do think that sometimes uh, you want to have that kind of liberty uh, to, to kind of push the boundaries. On the other hand, you know, like uh, I always recommend design systems to people because when you're giving the developer too much uh, or you're giving yourself even too much freedom to always re-implement, then, you know, you end up with inconsistent design or like really bad accessibility issues um, that, you know, like, and this is a little bit of my concern too where, like, companies always starting from nothing to implement their design system because they kind of learn painfully about this unknowns, right, mm-hmm. that, that others have like implemented into their design systems after years and years of years of iteration. For mm-hmm. me, a big one there is like keyboard navigation and so on where like, you know, people just forget it. And then you use a native component that comes with HTML and it has all these awesome built-in primitives, you know, that mm-hmm. the operating system manages. So, you know, it kind of goes also into the, into the problem that has, you know, become a big thing for everybody in the, in the web community, which is the amount of code that we ship to users, right? Mm-hmm. So when you implement very heavyweight design systems, you're now shipping a lot of code to your user, right? Yeah. I was reading this fascinating tweet and a study today of how you can't even take caches for granted. Because in a lot of cases, the network is faster than the cache. Like people think, well, I'll ship, you know, a three megabyte design system, it'll be cached. You know, we'll do monthly releases anyways. We'll just send the immutable cache headers. Well, acquiring that design system, JS file and CSS file from disk can actually be pretty slow. Uh, Maybe because of the capabilities of uh, disk I.O. bandwidth on the device. Maybe because uh, there's a lot of pressure on the disk because you're, you know, booting up another application concurrently. Maybe you have an HDD instead of an uh, SDD. So, you know, what I've learned so far is that the only way to be safe is to not shift too much (laughs) JavaScript. You know what I mean? Like, that's like what the best products end up doing. Yeah. Um, and, and certainly it doesn't fit every category of application. We're just talking about Figma. Figma, mm-hmm. surprisingly to a lot of uh, people in the audience, only ships, a, it ships a two megabyte WASM file. And a, I think it was like, a one, like the last time I looked at it, a one megabyte or maybe less JS file. It doesn't sound like a lot, right? Like you would think like, yeah. I think the sketch binary is like 60 megabytes or something. Yeah. Uh it's an an incredible feat to for it to be that slow. And and sure, if that doesn't load in a hundred milliseconds, well that's expected, right? And if if the you know withdrawal of that asset from disk takes a little bit longer, that's also okay. We're you know we're launching a design app. Now when you do the same for CNN.com, that's where things are getting complicated, right? Because like, hey, like I'm just trying to browse the news. I don't need to load Figma, right, inside. Yeah. But that's kind of like the duality of the web today, right? It's so powerful. Unconstrained creativity, unconstrained everything. The other day, I, I saw another great tweet of uh, one of the Devrels at Google for WebAssembly that uh, said, uh, the memory limits of WebAssembly heap size, I believe, has been lifted to four gigabytes. And that was like a new announcement Like, And it's like, oh, and he was kind of like being uh, dep- self-deprecating a little bit, but funny. Oh, a new way of making Chrome use up all my memory, right? Just like <laughs> load WebAssembly, load a one kilobyte WebAssembly binary that you allocates four gigabytes of heap. There you go. You know, like you, have used up all the available memory. Uh, but that, this is the thing, and from with Next.js, we are very conscious of this, and mm-hmm. and we're making lots of interesting uh, evolutions in this space of like how to ship very little JS. Mm-hmm. Um, we already have a Node.js, not not Node.js, but a Node.js mode that you can enable on a per page basis. Okay. Uh, But I'm particularly excited. um, I was actually speaking with uh, Tim Niotakis about this today. I'm really excited about bridging the gap of low JS. This is kind of term that I prefer, low JS. You know, don't throw uh, the baby out with the bathwater. Don't throw out JS entirely there are ways that it can be used very strategically for the kinds of pages that are not Figma, right? Mm -hmm. So if you're adding a little bit of scripting to one of those uh, uh, marketing pages or blogs or whatever, you don't have to, you know, ship lots and lots of JS. And then we can start being more mindful about making recommendations to people as well, right? Like, hey, like this is not the type of page that should have more than N kilobytes of JavaScript. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that kind of guidance ends up helping a lot because what we've found and Google has found many times is, um, you know, you accidentally ship Lodash JS in its entirety. You, <laughs> abs- you accidentally ship Moment.js in its entirety. You mm-hmm. accidentally ship a copy of Figma in, in, uh, in your page in its entirety as, a, as an accident. You know, like that's kind mm-hmm. of the the, the, the problem with the web today that we're trying to, you know, help solve.
0: Yeah, it's definitely an issue with, uh, like, when, you're, when you start bundling together a lot of different libraries and then, uh, especially if you don't have, like, at least early on, like, it's, it, it's not trivial to set up code-splitting yourself. Um, totally. And which... that was
1: also going back to the genesis of Next, that was the big idea behind, like, you know, the pages directory. Pages directory defines all your entry points they become code splitting entry points. And now if I'm going to the privacy policy, I'm only going to, you know, that bundle only contains the privacy policy. It doesn't accidentally ship in your commons chunk of, yeah. or, 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 or on your homepage, right? So yeah. we're, we're headed in a very interesting trajectory, right? Because a lot of people have always resisted the idea, like let's talk a little bit outside of the React world. A lot mm-hmm. of people have always resisted the idea of, even using a bundler, right? Like, you know, if I just use HTML, if I you add a link tag to a CSS file, mm-hmm. and maybe do some stuff with jQuery, that actually will be a pretty fast page. Mm-hmm. To the dismay of a lot of, you know, uh, you know, people that want to make JS, the us included, the uh, main character of the story. Like mm-hmm. the reality is that if, if those were the constraints of your system, there's almost no way of making things um, um, slow, right? Because Mm -hmm. you got static HTML, static CSS, and then the JS that you write is pretty well compressed and whatever. But what's happened if you look at it from a market dynamics perspective is the demand has gone in the direction of more and more dynamic and rich client-side experiences. Mm -hmm. More real-time data, right? Like no one builds or outputs a page today that is not enhanced with JavaScript on the client side in some way. Mm -hmm. So the trajectory that we're headed is because we have a compiler, we can now kind of end up with that result that you would have hand rolled otherwise, right? Like, and even better because we can output some HTML that you couldn't output by hand. Right? Like Mm -hmm. we, we give you super minified HTML, super minified CSS, only the CSS that you're actually using on the page.
2: Mm
3: -hmm.
1: because of our CSS modules uh, support and then optimizations for only the critical CSS. And then optimizations that are coming for lazy loading JS um, uh, as you uh, scroll through the viewport. We already have prefetching as you scroll through the viewport, meaning that we'll load the rest of the application. But then we can also give you this, like basically different routes of scripting throughout the page that will be lazy loaded and then at that point, you don't even have to worry about how much JS you use because the JS only gets loaded just in time. So yeah. imagine that you build a uh, blog where, you know, you have lots and lots of content and then your footer has a very expensive script, right? Mm-hmm. Like you're render- like let's go back to that MomentJS. I accidentally included MomentJS example. Let's yeah. say that you're using MomentJS to render uh, the year uh, copyright. 2020 uh, for whatever reason you're using Moment.js uh, mm-hmm. to render that. Uh, maybe to you're maybe because you wanted to render the year adjusted to the user's time zone, so that it, during the New Year's Eve, some people get 2019, some people get 2020. Mm-hmm. Now, in the world that we're experimentally headed toward, it wouldn't even matter if you ship Moment.js because the root of dynamism only exists in the footer and gets loaded only by the time you get there and also preemptively as you're on the page. So imagine almost like a website being a, a picture and we land that picture of above the fold instantly from the edge. You begin scrolling and then we start prefetching other parts of the application, not just of that very page, but also the dynamic entry points of that very page itself. So what you end up with is a system that almost can never be slow. That's kind of what our goal is uh, with this optimizations, like how, you know, limiting the developer doesn't always end up being a, a an effective strategy because you've probably seen, uh, I believe it was Adios Osmani from Google that contributed the coloring of the Webpack bundles when you run Webpack build. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when we look at the data of the broad web, we don't see that, you know, that really, really, you know, stop developers from shipping. Oh, like the bundle is yellow. I, I'm gonna take another look. So really what we've been been investing in is like, what are automatic ways that we can make, uh, you know, the reduction on the JS is necessary to be loaded, um, just an automatic optimization. And it's mm-hmm. not so much on like pushing back to the developer and punishing them for, you know, working on a feature or writing code.
0: Mm-hmm. I guess yeah, and in, in the end, it, it always comes down to just making it automatic in a way, Correct. Uh, which is really interesting. I mean, it's I, I mean, after even just hearing this, I'm I'm definitely more uh, interested because I, I work with uh, Next JS, but I also work with a lot of I've worked with at least a lot of just you know create React app applications because we decided uh, that we thought we needed more dynamic, uh, you know, dynamic. Mm-hmm. Uh, data coming in, uh, we wanted to maintain data between pages, but I mean, at the end of the day, I guess, uh, Next.js kind of handles that, or allows you to handle that as much as you want, but- Yeah, some people
1: choose to create React app because they wanted to use Redux. Mm-hmm. And uh, the idea of a global store doesn't bode well or go well with a system that tries to optimize for isolation of the pieces in some way, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But what we did that uh, kind of, I mean, this is kind of like constraints are the mother of invention. We wanted to retain very, very speedy page navigations on the Vercel dashboard. Mm -hmm. And instead what we did, instead of trying to think of a global anything, the word global in some ways also gives me, always gives me pause, right? Because (laughs) I don't want, uh, you know, a developer is working on, page number 152 to have to keep global requirements on their head like mm-hmm. it's scary it's like oh if i issue this i have to think about what side effects it has in the rest of the system mm-hmm. and that's a problem with global stores you literally cannot slice them because then they stop being a global store of state mm-hmm. but yeah. the requirements and i always think about product requirements i never think about like technology requirements the, the requirement for me, and, and, and a lot of users I assume that have gone with Redux was they wanted snappy transitions to snappy interactions. In some cases, if you really study the rise of Redux, you could argue it needed the, uh, you needed better dev tooling for inspecting deltas of state. So there, yeah. there's a few you can trace a few kinds of like lines of demand for that technology. Mm-hmm. Which coalesce at some points. Yeah, but- like for
0: instance, the fast refreshing, uh, when you were showing me that mm-hmm. earlier, when you mentioned that earlier, uh, I immediately thought back to Redux DevTools, where uh, when it first came out, that totally. was like the, the most amazing thing where you could load totally. in a previous state and it just worked. Totally.
1: Yeah, so it's always been a combination of I want some product results, mm-hmm. uh, I want some engineering constraints, and I want some developer tooling right? There's always been those kind of three prongs. Now, on the tooling, you know, it's always been a case that, like, you also want to see the evolution of your React state. So, and component state. It's not just that you want to see your global store state. So, I think that one is a little bit moot. Mm -hmm. On the, the, the one that I always took a lot of interest in is performance, right? Like, I, like everybody else, want very, very fast websites and applications. So, we wanted that for our dashboard, And what we did is instead of uh, storing state, we started analyzing the problem as a caching problem instead. And and that's a very important distinction to be made because when you're dealing with caches,
2: Mm -hmm.
1: and earlier I talked about about what Vercel does automatically to populate this global caches of pages and then revalidating them automatically and the developer doesn't have to think about any of this. Mm -hmm. I always want caching to be automatic because it's too easy to do it wrong, right? Like it's one of the hardest problems in (laughs) computer science is caching validation. So we came came up with uh, this idea of a React hook where you say, you know, get me slash user to get the Mm -hmm. the user state. And then as you you navigate through the system, slash user and the result of that hook is always cached Mm -hmm. and it's always returned from memory. So then you go okay, but that's shitty. So like, what happens if I log out? What happens if the username changes? What happens if this and that? Like, what do we do? Is every time the cache is read, we aggressively revalidate it in the background. So what this allows us to do is that it removes that global knowledge. Now everybody can write code that says, "Get me the user." It mm-hmm. doesn't matter. Now, if you're navigating back and forth, you read it from cache. This is how every native application behaves, right? Like when you work, when you are playing around with a native app Mm -hmm. and you navigate through panes or you tap on something, data that's already been fetched is always there synchronously, right? But what I didn't want to fall for the trouble, okay, like now you have to invalidate um, um, your cache manually. So what we did is we... And we call this library SWR because it's, it stands for stale while revalidate, which is a part of an HTTP RFC. It's, it's a, it's a form of cash control. Mm-hmm. So this has worked tremendously well for us because we get, we got that speedy changes throughout pages and yet, and now no one uh, manages any global state. And very importantly, we denormalized everything. So we're not saying that you have to be aware of what every other page in the system is doing to that data. And -hmm. we're embracing this idea of eventual consistency, right? Like I'd rather give you certain pieces of data instantly rather than wait on a brand new read from the server. And then they can eventually converge. And this is super important because this is the natural state of any website regardless, right? Like if I go and, you know, go to my profile page on an application
3: mm-hmm. and I
1: get some data and I close my laptop, right? By the time I reopen it, well, the data is stale, right? It's not mm-hmm. updating in real time. Like I have to press the refresh button, whatever. So what we did with these hooks, and it's why it's interesting that earlier we talked about reentrancy, mm-hmm. is that we subscribe to all the events on the web browser that might indicate user intent on getting the latest version of that data. point. So for example, we subscribe to the page visibility events. We've subscribed to a tab becoming focused or not. We subscribe to the reconnection of, 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 of that, uh, of the internet, of the, of the device. So mm-hmm. if, you, if you made a lot of reads on your, on your um, website on the client side and you're using SWR, by the time you regain internal connectivity, boom! You're you're um, uh, you now have the most uh, uh, up-to-date state. And what we're really uh, fascinated by is that not only did we have to, not only did we throw away Redux, we also got a lot of the benefits that are typically associated with um, GraphQL subscriptions, for example, mm-hmm. the idea of like keeping data up to date automatically. Um, and even, we've even gone beyond, right? Because we, like I said, we can reconciliate state very aggressively and very easily. So for example, in that example of opening your laptops two weeks later, mm-hmm. SWR always converges to the desired state. And, and this mm-hmm. is kind of how we navigated that Jamstack space, right? Like we have some markup that has already been pre-generated. And then how do you get, you know, data on the client side? Well, we use these hooks. And they basically have no limit to how dynamic the data can be once you use, uh, once you use that library, which by the way, is
0: like one kilobyte.
2: Mm.
1: Oh, wow.
0: <laughs> so, so US, uh, or, sorry, use SWR uh, handles all of this on its own then, like it, it yeah. kind of subscribes to all those events. And I've seen examples on, on Twitter. I haven't had the opportunity to check it out, but I have yeah, seen a SWR, lot of people.
1: Yeah. .now.sh if you want to check out, which will soon be app, but mm-hmm. um, that's where we kind of created some of these examples. One of the findings also that we made is like, because we only do, for example, the polling of your data while the page is being rendered, it's actually pretty cheap on the server. Like a lot of people think, oh, like, well, we re- re- revalidate aggressively. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you know, that's maybe a handful of extra API calls. And our backends are really good at, you know, handling API calls and returning Mm -hmm. data from memory, right? Like, especially modern databases are so good at scaling read throughput. Mm -hmm. So what we traded off is, okay, like, no one needs to write this global store madness. Um, We optimize for user experience because now everything is really performant. And now everything is real time and converges to the same state without needing a specialized data layer. So much so that SLER doesn't care about what the data fetching function is. It can use fetch, you can use GraphQL if you want, you can even use it as a way of managing index DB state. So I'll tell you a really interesting story. So when we were working on our dashboard, we wanted to, we said, Let's, we want to have the fastest dashboard in SaaS. And I don't know if if we're quite there yet, but I'm really happy about where where we are lately. Um, And one of the things that we had as a constraint is like, we're going to use Jamstack. So when you go to our dashboard, you're going to get a static HTML page. Mm -hmm. So then that means that we have to start like, okay, like we're, if that is our constraint, we have to start thinking about, okay, how do I get the data as soon as possible? Right? So one interesting thing you're going to see if you inspect our HTML is Their link rel preload tags, Uh, and then I I was talking to the Twitter.com guys and and they use the same technique, their link rel preload tags that are anticipating the requests that React is going to make later on. So React is going to invoke these hooks. They're going to go and make fetch requests. Those fetch requests were already made by just HTML and the web browser as the HTML was being streamed from the edge. So that's optimization number one. Mm. So what happens later is like, okay, if React comes to life, this skeleton for the page is already being pre-rendered into the HTML, but, but as React comes to life, all these hooks start getting, start firing to get all this uh, dynamic data. Mm-hmm. So what's really neat about this is that like, we turn a technology that is very much commonplace, which is fetch and HTTP yeah. uh, you know, requests, and we kind of you know made them work really really efficiently in parallel all the hooks that are not depending on each other fire in parallel so it almost feels like you're streaming data even though you're not really streaming because you just got a static page downloaded from the from, from the cdn hmm.
0: yeah it makes a lot of sense i mean like it's almost like you're like you're pre-populating whatever you can and then you just fall back to like an API request as soon as you you need
1: new data. Yeah, and and this kind of gives the developer the ability to, again, like you got to have something that's pre-rendered and then when you have to enhance it on the client side, you can basically just use React hooks and and get all these benefits of what I call user personalized data as well, right? So like one of the constraints of Jamstack when it comes to pre-rendering is that you can only pre-render things that, fit public caches, right? You can mm-hmm. pre-render blog posts. You could even pre-render in multiple languages. You can pre-render uh, maybe even geolocated content that like you can give someone in the United States, some content, someone in Canada, some other content. Mm-hmm. But what, what all this has in common is that nothing is private, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Nothing was specifically for Guillermo and contains private information, right? And that's great because what it, what that constraint did is that now we shifted all of that, that's user personalized and private to the client side. And now we don't have to worry about, you know, two security contexts, as long as our API is secure, you know, the JS gets executed in the, in the secure sandbox of the web browser. And it's the same JS for every visitor of -hmm. that cohort. And now they can just like make API calls, right? And it's the same way that a, a native application uh, works, which you know have been very notoriously secure over the years. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, with that ability to like execute that JS on the client side, you can add any level of personalization that you want for that specific user session. So in our case, for example, on all our pages, we render the user state, whether you're logged in or not. Mm-hmm. And that goes for all our marketing pages and all our dashboard pages because they just execute this client side hook um, that says, get me the user information. And then we render that proactively, uh, uh, we render that later on, on the client side. Mm-hmm. So it, every page just arrives to this completeness result in a manner that's very consistent and the markup is always downloaded from the edge, which means like the first paint it's always instant. The user is never blocked and looking at a white screen while your server is doing some work. So you can have your cake and eat it too. You know this is.
0: Yeah, like I just invalidated in my own cache, and then as soon as I load the page, um, every page loads instantly, and then uh, you know, like the the login works like pretty quick. Um, what what you mentioned about uh, the Redux issue um, is kind of funny because that is um, my major gripe with uh, Next.js up until now has always been um, using Redux and then having to uh, revalidate that store or re rehydrate uh, that store server side and then um, making sure that <laughs> we weren't doing anything that somehow uh, resulted in like you know shared data like between yeah. users.
1: I'm glad we covered like CSS and we covered like a bunch of a bunch of things because like I've always found that our usage of React has been so like boring, but for a good reason. You know what I mean? Like we never we always use React State. Like nowadays we're just using hooks, right? Like we mm-hmm. never use any state store. With uh, we even though we have quite complicated systems, right? Like uh, one of our pages is like the log the logs of your deploys, and mm-hmm. uh, there's lots of real time data. And other pages have complex form flows, like our import flow for importing a a repo into Mm -hmm. Vercel. We've never used MobX. We've never used Redux. We've never used any of those things. And we've never really needed them. Um, Mm -hmm. And by the way, the the React team has always consistently agreed with us, right? Like, this is a problem with, or a problem, it's a good thing, but this is a thing with, like, very massively popular things Yeah, is that everyone adopts their own kind of philosophy around them. Mm -hmm. But our philosophy has been always pretty consistent that we want to use the primitives that are being being given by React. This is why we've never had a themes um, concept in XJS Mm -hmm. because at least personally, I've never seen how, that's not a problem that fits the domain of React as opposed to the framework. We've always tried to make the framework very lean. Mm-hmm. And, and with CSS, uh, our take has always been try to use CSS. So we support, yeah. uh, we always support style JSX and now we support uh, import, uh, importing CSS modules and so on. You know, we've always tried to be boring, but for good reasons. And, and, and when it came to you know, this specific challenge of like, how do you make, you know, uh, data fetching consistent and super fast across pages? Mm-hmm. We wanted to retain that constraint of like, well, let's try to use, you know, the platform. Let's not try to add more and more and more overhead to, to even what you need to learn to, to, to add some, you know, dynamic components that do data fetching. And, and at the same time, not have the developer have to reinvent the wheel. Right? Mm-hmm. And we're, we're pretty happy with where we landed. Now, as I said earlier, React itself is in, in a lot of evolution. So the React team is working also on data fetching primitives uh, for components. So that's mm-hmm. our other kind of uh, alignment that we've always had is like, you know, we, we kind of know where the React team is headed, and Next.js does a really good job at aligning itself well for the future.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, so because we never want to, have a situation where a lot of people have bet on Next.js, you know, and then it takes a direction that doesn't make any sense with the future of React itself. And that's why we've always strived to be very, very lean with the overhead that the framework adds, right? Like we, the worst thing you could have is, you know, you put in a lot of investment into this framework and then the very thing that was attracting you to it becomes incompatible, right? Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I mean, I found that to be the case with. Uh, I mean, it's 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 evolved now, but um, back before, like when when it stopped being as well maintained, um, Meteor kind of had that same sort of issue where, um, like early on at least, it was, it was it was it came with its own templating and all of that, and as the community kind of moved towards totally. different libraries, it just totally. it just kind of fell apart, and every application you were building in it, it was there was no like concise totally. way
1: to do it. Totally. And it happened uh, with NPM, right? For example, mm-hmm. there, were, there were Meteor packages and then people were using NPM, right? So we, we th- that's kind of our like, biggest thing, right? Like we, framework is so popular now that the only thing you hear is feature requests. So mm-hmm. it, we have to have this really good uh, um, balance between, you know, you know, sometimes it really does uh, come down to saying no to things that are good ideas if you know that you know they're not going to be a good idea in six months mm. uh, you know like that's that's the tricky thing and, and sometimes articulating that can be a little tough but uh on the opposite side you know we've added so many things that uh react really never had like a very easy to use router mm. and and those things you know have become sort of invariants of the web like our goal was always you know Next has to output pages that are accessible via URLs. So we know that's not, never going to go away <laughs> and it's going to be compatible with whatever system that comes later on. So that's always kind of been our, our, our hypothesis. In yeah. fact, one of, the, one of the things that we always would think about in the beginning was like, let's even strive for a world where, you know, Next could at least portions of Next.js can be compiled down to web components. Because I do think that there's a lot of merit in that technology. Um, I don't think you know it's it's. Uh, this is the thing that happens with with frameworks, right? And this is why having a compiler, and, and making that your starting point is so useful. Is that as platforms evolve, well, sometimes you can just you know ship less code, and you can take advantage of the code that has already been preloaded uh, on the device. And, and what I found, and this is kind of like a lesson. In software engineering, for me, is you can never compete with that. You can never compete with a web browser is already booted mm-hmm. and you're already preloaded a ton of code, right? It's 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 the same principle that makes Next.js very hard to beat in terms of like page navigation times, right? Like you open the page and we're already prefetching the next one. You know, it's very mm-hmm. hard to compete with that. If you you know put a uh, two pages side by side, you know, legacy system, Next.js system. I consistently see that the Next.js one outperforms
0: mm-hmm.
1: via very simple things like prefetching.
0: Do you think that, because uh, I know that there were some examples of, uh, like, for instance, Gatsby, uh, like, the prefetching was able to uh, like beat the performance of just a static HTML page. Do you think that it does next do the same sort of the same optimizations?
1: Yeah, yeah. and the bundles of uh, JS, the JS that Next.js preloads are smaller too. So okay. in this case, and again, like it's always uh, a matter of looking at it for your own specific use case, but mm-hmm. uh, in, in this case, it just actually would probably be both, but the point is exactly what you said, right? Like uh, having this higher level uh, platforms sometimes enables these kind of optimizations that are just, you know, hard to compete with. Like the hand rolled web is, you know, not in a good shape right now mm-hmm. uh, because you're not, you're just not going to get these things like preloading the code. But the same is true for the code that you ship to the client side, right? Like if the browser has already loaded all the code for a certain thing, and then you try to reinvent that thing with your code, well, you're just going to lose every time.
2: Mm
3: -hmm. You know, it's just
1: a matter of physics.
3: And I see that with,
1: I see that with components, as I mentioned with like, oh, you're loading all the code for, you know, a custom uh, select box. And then the browser already has one and they allow you to change it with CSS. You're just not going to win. Um, there's that even as I mentioned with because caches can be slow, so caches are not no free lunch either. Mm. Um, and I see that even with fonts and mm. um and web fonts, right? Like the browser and the operating system have a hyper mega cached version of the atlas, the texturized atlas of the system UI typeface, right? So, it's very hard to compete with that, right? Like, the, the freaking texture is already in the GPU, and you're starting to download a unknown font from a uh, third party CDN. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? Like, it's just so hard to compete with that. Now, does everyone have to worry about this, like, you know, hundreds of milliseconds? Well, I would argue for very sophisticated use cases, you do. And, like, in, in, in a lot of those cases, web fonts lose. But then there's also the side of creativity and, like, well, web fonts. Uh, sometimes look freaking great, right? So, like, yeah. being aware of where you spend your, you know, performance credits is still a really good idea. And but that, you know, that's kind of like one invariant that I've found that like always helps me to reason about these things is like, well, are you competing with something that's already loaded by the time you begin
0: downloading your
1: alternative? Well, that's mm-hmm. always gonna lose. <laughs> yeah, I guess
0: the moment you reach the network, it kind of. Is in the hands of God at that point, really? Yeah,
1: yeah. You don't yeah. know what's going to happen. <laughs> and, and, and and this is why I'm so you know um, um, enthusiastic about what we're doing with our Edge network because as I was reading that article today uh, about how like the cash on your device can can lose to the network, it brought back a lot of memories. Like we've uh, we've discussed this extensively with the Facebook team about how like they've also done experiments. We did our own experiments where the network was outperforming IndexedDB, like we, we um, I, I lost my train about earlier, but I was going to share this story of like, mm. w- one experiment that we did with SWR is, well, SWR can take any asynchronous function, right? So you can say, okay, uh, use SWR slash user comma fetch. Mm. So what we did is like we built fetch with IndexedDB because then we can aggressively when once we read from index DB, and we, and we ship that. So what we did is like, our idea was like, okay, you're gonna come back to versal.com slash dashboard. We're gonna have everything there. It's gonna be like a native app. Like when you reopen Instagram and all the photos and all the comments and everything that you last saw were already there. Mm-hmm. And then we um, uh, added our telemetry system to this and we uh, instrumented the crap out of it. So like we instrumented, we traced every asynchronous function call We traced time to first contentful paint and all other important metrics. And we saw that it was a regression uh, relative to just going to the network in a huge number of cases. Hmm. So that's what then led to the the, the alternative investigation path of like, let's try to make the network request instead as soon as possible, even by the time the HTML is streaming in. And that just gave us kind of what we wanted that idea of like, Hey, load, you know, come to the site and like get all the data in one go that almost feels like a real time stream from the server. So going back to the edge network points that what I find is that make making no assumptions about the contents of the device leads to the best engineering possible. It's almost like you're always working in favor of your worst case scenario. Mm -hmm. So, that also applies to CDNs, right? Like you you think your CDN that's going to your server full origin is great because, oh, it can cache. But are you sure it can cache in 150 locations for every single page and that, you know, you're not going to get a lot of misses? Well, the data becomes really blurry and hard to understand at that point. So you better off assume that you're not. it's not going to be in cache, right? You better assume that, you know, maybe there's an alternative design that would allow for, you know, the pages to never be missed. Mm -hmm. So a lot of our investment goes into that direction of like, think about the network as being the most important and and fundamental thing that needs to be instant. And don't, you know, put your chips on the power of the device or or, or other things like that. Uh, You know, we've seen the single threaded, single core performance, uh, of CPUs on mobile devices throughout the world
2: mm-hmm.
1: have not improved. Like, right. Tim Cook keeps making our CPUs so faster faster than our MacBook Pros, <laughs> but for the rest of the world, interestingly, the networks are improving. So mm-hmm. I, here in San Francisco, have worse internet than one of our employees in India <laughs> uh, who has way better LTE than I do. But the devices are not going to be, you know, for the most part, until, you know, at at least in a few years, um, they're not going to be iPhone 11 Pros. So this idea of a streaming pre-rendered content that is not even traveling to origin with, you know, very fast loading JS that makes no assumptions whatsoever about contents of the cache is a system that will make, you know, the web orders of magnitude faster for, you know, the everyday publisher. I'm not talking about, you know, uh, Facebook that has an SRE team of like thousands of people. I'm talking about like making the web, the, the fast web accessible to everybody. That has not really happened yet. And, and this is kind of what we're working on.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense because, you know, I, I guess like, yeah, like um, when we think of like, so so one of the questions that I wanted to kind of uh, bring up here was um, what was your opinion on like infrastructure as code and, you know, because it seems like there's two camps that are kind of evolving over time, right? Um, we've got the the serverless, the uh, Jamstack, and, and that sort of environment. And then we've got these other, like, you know, DevOps-oriented um, infrastructures, code, Kubernetes deployments, and, yeah. like, being able to deploy an entire system to the cloud uh, through, like, a scripted environment. Um, and and I, I always kind of imagine that, you know, uh, there, there has to be like kind of like a middle ground where like, you know, you have like a boilerplate and it, you should be able to get your environment deployed and you've, you've got like a templated version or some sort of whatever for your end system. Yeah,
1: that's, that's a good question. I always tell people like when they ask, like, oh, are you thinking about, uh, what do you think about infrastructure as code? I always tell them mm-hmm. like, I prefer infrastructure as no code. <laughs> I really think that, I really think that, um, you know, to, to be... To be truthful, like, I think that the web has to learn a lot about, you know, the entire experience end-to-end from developer to recipient of mm. iOS, for example. Like, the developer is working on an, an, on an app that will, you know, in a few weeks re- reach potentially billions of de- Apple devices. Um, it's not worried about how Apple is orchestrating the CDN infrastructure, their blocks of code to the mm. end users. They just trust that Apple will do a good job and that Mm -hmm. that job will get better over time. And indeed it happens, right? Like I've noticed this with native apps over time. like it used to take forever. Now Apple has invested a lot in their edge caching functionalities. Uh, Recently, they even put out a um, project, I believe it's called edge.cache or Apple or or cache.edge.apple where they're promoting uh, for ISPs to start caching the native apps, you know, right in the neighborhoods, right? Where like people are, right? So that's what I think effective, you know, uh, uh, software architecture should look like. The developer is concerned on the user and on expressing their creativity. And the infrastructure is just part of the air. And it's fast and reliable and always there. Now, Apple is a world garden. and, And they have lots of terrible ideas about how they, lots of great ideas and lots of not so good ideas about you know, what makes it into the app store, what, you know, this and that. Mm. And the web is open and it's fantastic. Yeah. Uh, but I want to make sure that like, uh, at least for for our own like little, you know, sector of the world, that we maintain that level of quality when it comes to the infrastructure. Um, and that that we enable those optimizations to also happen over time. And I think infrastructure as code is kind of a regression in that way. Because like now you materialize your infrastructure in a hard, fixed in space and time like JSON file Mm
3: -hmm. that
1: then someone has to maintain or YAML or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And things things unsurprisingly don't get so much better over time because now you've checked in into your Git repo the responsibility for both. Mm -hmm. Before the Git repo could have been just your application. Now it's your application plus the infrastructure. And when I think about, you know, delivering great experiences to end users, I think, you know, creating a great application, a great website is already hard enough. We covered a number of subjects, uh, even like the decision of whether a custom font should be used, right? Mm -hmm. Accessibility. Like, these things are hard and take a lot of effort. I want to make sure that we spend all our effort in those things uh, or on the cohesive application and correct application of the design system and the evolution thereof. You know, if, if we focus on those things, then the web becomes really, really competitive. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I'm talking about like taking over the world competitive where like, you know, you reuse your skills that you learned for Jamstack today, not only for websites, but in the future for any kind of web app and in the future, any kind of app period, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, we definitely certainly have that intention with next.js That's another thing I think about a lot is like we're here today solving some fundamental problems of the web being slow but you know the sky's the limit with how far you can go like in terms of making the experience of developing a next.js site more of a visual experience that is even more approachable to people with uh, and not as many engineering skills Mm. but even further than that right like There's no reason for the web to not be able to overtake every single app on your mobile device. Mm -hmm. It's just a matter of time. It happened with Electron, right? Like we we used to write code for many platforms and and, and so on. And nowadays, like the web is freaking rocking it, right? Like even a lot of people would like knock down Electron because of the Slack app. But now the Slack app is one of the fastest apps, at least for myself. It's one of the fastest apps I have. Mm -hmm. And other
0: apps that are native are not so good. (laughs) So, <laughs> yes, uh, I always look at I'm, Sketch, I'm, kind of, it's, it feels slower and slower every, every year.
1: Totally. And as I said, like, is a freaking two megabyte, you know, what's a bundle? Like, it's, it think, amazing things are happening. And, mm. and uh, I think the, tra- the trajectory of the web is, is such such an amazing one. Um, and, and uh, yeah, you know, enabling all those people to, to produce for it. Uh, it consistently remains, uh, in my opinion, the platform with the easiest onboarding. Right, like you don't have to get a developer license. Uh, you you code with a web browser to get started. People nowadays make memes with the dev tools. Like everyone knows how to make the web, and it's uh, it's uh, it's a good place to be.
0: Mm-hmm. Do Do you think that Next.js will eventually get into like uh, like sort of like the React Native and like native applications uh, sphere? Or
1: I, I think I think eventually, uh, not not so much with like hard native stuff, but Mm-hmm. I've talked to a lot of the big Next.js customers, like Trulia, for example, where they kept telling me, like, I'm this close to ditching all our native views for properties
2: mm-hmm. so
1: that I can just slow the Next.js view. I, don't, mm-hmm. I, haven't, uh, I haven't followed that very closely, but um, they were certainly experimenting with it. I, a friend of mine that works at Credit Karma told me that it did that happen for them, mm-hmm. um, So there's broad categories of views, not the entire app, but broad categories of views that imagine like the benefits of like, that I just outlined, right? Like the property gets downloaded from the edge and it's reliably there in 20 milliseconds. Oh, and it can sometimes outperform the cache of your mobile device Mm -hmm. and it's consistent and you can update it however you want without, uh, um, uh, redoing the entire uh, application, right? We had redownloaded the entire application. So, I would even turn the question upside down and say like, well, in some ways it's already happened, right? Like, mm. I, I I, wonder how many um, of these kinds of, uh, um, you know, Next.js pages are already being loaded in that way. I know mm. I know of a bunch of, for, for large apps and I think it's going to continue to happen. Um, and, you know, it should happen because There are certain things that native uh, uh, does that are, again, hard to compete with. If you've already downloaded, it's already Mm preloaded. But the things that are in, uh, and this is kind of the paradox of Jamstack, right? The property page is a great candidate in in kind of a a Trulia or Zillow or realtor.com, all of -hmm. which, by the way, are powered by Next.js. So if any of those property changes, the data is obviously dynamic. But Mm -hmm. you kind of want to have those be incrementally statically generated because then you get this like instant um, uh, uh, edge download and like super fast um, download times. Mm -hmm. But um, if you were to do that by going to a server, you know, in that case, like it might be hard to compete with native. Now, if we're talking about it's like, hey, that page is like 20 milliseconds away, and now you have the freedom to deploy it on your own. And regenerate it on your own. Then you know native starts becoming less and less compelling because now you can match the performance. Uh, in some cases you can even exceed its performance because again, like the HTML plus CSS web that doesn't have a JS bottleneck, it's very hard to compete with because it's just like a streaming wire format. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. uh, it, it's hard to like sure like. If you're parsing JSON versus parsing HTML, and then mapping the JSON to the native components and whatever, like it's not so clear to me that like native has the web beat uh, in in a very strong theoretical way, even. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then there's the practical economical reasons, right? Like now all of a sudden you're creating your pages with the same skill set that your entire team has, delivering the same payloads or even payloads with slight variants for like Android, iPhone, whatever. Um, and you can do you can do this at a massive scale, for mm-hmm. every device on the planet. Then I think the web wins again, uh, just for pure pure economic reasons. Um, and but again, like the 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 tough thing with native is you know there is this mega power law of we're all always just using Facebook, Twitter, and whatever. Mm-hmm. And when you have such a concentration, you find that they can afford like go down to the level of like writing hand rolled assembly if necessary, Mm. because a slight change impacts the behavior of billions of users. So I don't think we're gonna compete there. Like, in fact, I would argue that like uh, no one, no one that has any high level interface can compete. I don't know if you heard about uh, Messenger got rewritten in C. Mm. And all, the, funny enough, like all the custom components got thrown out mm. uh, because of the law that I mentioned earlier. That like, if they use native platform primitives, even for them, like going from uh, let's say Objective C or C I don't remember what the previous target was, mm. to their new version in C, they reduced binary size drastically, and they started using more of the native platform.
3: Mm-hmm. So
1: going back to the idea of don't write your custom select on web. Well, don't write your custom select in iOS either. (laughs) So like that, that law still holds. It's Mm -hmm. a very fascinating article that that Facebook put out. And then uh, what was interesting about that, uh, the findings there too, is that like, they, you know, like they just went and rewrote it absolutely from scratch just to get like, you know, a slightly faster boot up time for me but at the scale of that app is operating
0: in, is like night and day boot up time difference. Yeah. Whereas There's, like if you're a small startup or if you're only serving so many customers, or if you only have such a, you know, like if you're a traditional like brick and mortar business and you only have yep. two or three developers, yep. you don't have the capacity to yeah, go I to think, that level. I think
1: we're, I think we're web is going to, uh, is that big medium uh, and big long tail. Uh, is where web is going to start making some really interesting uh, uh, progress over in, in, in this coming decade. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we um, we have a lot of customers in e-commerce. Uh, Next.js is used for, again, like creating all kinds of pages, but there's a lot in e-commerce. There's a lot of news websites. And they also want to have their native apps because, you know, at the end of the day, it becomes kind of like a practical bookmark for mm-hmm. your favorite, uh, you know, provider of choice, whether it's mm-hmm. some brand of shoes that you love or um, your favorite news website and so on. And, um, and And that equation, even though it's not a small startup anymore, it kind of starts to uh, wear on you know the decision makers of those companies, like, oh, do we now spin up two new teams to to uh, you know we, we just did this massive react effort. Do we spin Mm -hmm. up two new teams, one for Android, one for iOS? So that's where I think we're going to see, you know, very much growth in React Native and, uh, you know, uh, Ionic-type apps that get distributed Mm -hmm. as as native, but they're loading uh, progressive web applications and hybrids of these, right? Mm -hmm. So like uh, apps that boot into React Native and maybe there's a very optimized uh, native view. And then parts of the other views are just, you know glorified web views.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah I guess you could incrementally upgrade that I mean you could just deploy whatever Next.js website you have as a progressive I'm, web I'm app. Pretty,
1: and... I'm pretty sure and everyone on the internet is listening to this can fact check me but I mm-hmm. that incremental idea I'm pretty sure is what Amazon did um, and, and if, if not Amazon a lot of e-commerce uh, providers like them so there mm-hmm. are plenty of these where like they were like okay we need to go to mobile tomorrow okay, we have this super complicated system. We're not going to rewrite it overnight. Okay, launch a web view and then incrementally improve it,
2: mm-hmm. right?
1: If necessary. And like, if you take that as the baseline, then, you know, you might get to the point where like you're not incrementally replacing the web as much because now it's, it's all of a sudden doing a really great job. And,
2: mm-hmm. and I know
1: that Google has done lots of interesting studies about like, um, you know, when, when companies uh, created PWAs, they ended up outperforming some of the engagement metrics of the native apps. And, and that's just, you know, the credit to, you know, great tooling that they used, uh, great care and, and great engineering on their side. You know, something that was interesting about that messenger rewrite thing was so much of what we do also has to do with this care for the detail, care for the output sizes, care for not, you know, repeating code. And, and there's no magical technology that replaces that care, I guess uh, going to my point earlier, the magic that we're trying to bring is that if you care less about infrastructure, now you have more time as a developer to actually do that work that is not necessarily always all that fun, but it has to do with like digging deep and seeing like, okay, like what am I shipping to the end user? Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I saw a great tweet the other day also by one of the uh, core contributors to Go, and he was saying, oh my God, the Go compiler is shipping all this nonsense into my binary. He had not just blindly trusted the Go compiler, which is by the way, is a freaking amazing thing. Um, and he was like, there is 110 kilobytes in this static binary that my Go compiler output that, uh, that, that it is redundant and unnecessary. And here's the workaround that I found for not including that. And this is kind of what I find consistently in like great engineering outcomes. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of care for the size of the output. Size, I mean, not only on the output size of like, oh, how big is the JS, size mm-hmm. in terms of memory usage, size in terms of, you know, or, or the, the, the length of all the important metrics. I want to call out too that uh, the Chrome team did a, did a great job with uh, uh, an announcement that they made this week that they called the Web Vitals, uh, and they really uh, came up with an, a very constrained and simple system of three metrics.
2: Mm. For
1: like, what are the vital metrics that you look at when you analyze the performance of anything? Uh, and and yeah, like you know, like like paying close attention to those vitals mm-hmm. is is kind of the the right thing to do. And and you know, there's plenty of optimizations that we're constantly making to the framework, but you know. Uh, having the affordance of of getting that time to measure uh, the the key metrics of your product is always the right investment to make, and it doesn't really matter what what platform you're using. And like I said, this is kind of why uh, infrastructure to me like the more the more we can re- reduce that burden from from companies and, and teams is uh, you know I always think if we succeed, people are you know creating better products, they're creating better websites. And, and that's why we, we analyze all these metrics at at a grand scale, right? Like from Next.js 1 to Next.js 10, we'll, we're gonna publish this soon, but it's pretty amazing how much faster we've made the web. Even from Next.js 8 to Next.js 9, some of the biggest retailers that we serve, you know, became like 40% faster. And, and the metrics are well understood, right? Like if you're faster, like you're, you convert better, you sell better. So it's really nice to be operating at a scale now where like we continue to ideate all this, you know, optimization and so on. And then people just yarn at and update their dependency. And now all of a sudden they're like doing their business better. It's, it's a very motivating thing for
2: us.
0: Yeah. It seems like the, uh, it really does seem like the future of the web is just being able to, you know, update your dependencies and like kind of benefit out of the box from from those changes and then and you know you make you might need to make some some minor modifications, but I noticed like with Next, like the, the migration path is always seems very like simple, very straightforward, um, which is yeah, impressive. we're very, very, very committed
1: to uh, backwards compatibility. In fact, when we added the static data fetching hooks, we retained support for the uh, uh, more generic uh, get initial props data fetching hook. And every mm-hmm. path is an incremental path for everybody. So like, if you want to make a page a static, we tell you delete, get initial props, which means signals Next.js that there's no data fetching to be done so we can output HTML. Mm-hmm. Or we tell them, um, uh, you know, opt in to get static props. And now you can fetch uh, uh, data at build time. So mm-hmm. it's always been a, a lot of care for that type of experience of like, hey, like, I actually did this recently and it's pretty crazy, but when I announced Next.js at uh, React Conf, I built a deck with Next.js, um, kind of like my slides, all built with React components. Mm-hmm. And that was like, you know, one of the, I think it was even pre 1.0, it was like Next.js 0.something. And <laughs> I took that same code base uh, and I, I tried to run it, I think probably even this year, maybe like January of this year, and it just worked. The only thing that didn't work was, you know, someone deleted a dependency from FDM. That I was using. <laughs> like, but other than that, you know, you like got on the next <laughs> side, yeah, exactly. On the next year's <laughs> side, everything was good. And then like, I think it was like some uh, transient dependency of some date library that, but, you know, within seconds, you know, um, uh, without any code-based changes, like things were, uh, going really well. And, and, you know, it, it was kind of that, um, realization that it it feels nice that you can even go back in time and, and your code is, and this is kind of why also the web is so awesome, right? Like Mm -hmm. I'm sure that like you try to boot some old app on iOS and just, you know, uh, unless it's recompiled or something like that it just doesn't work. And like, um, with, with the web, you know, things can, can really persist forever. Uh, that's certainly one of our, you know, intents with our deployment system, right? Like teams can go back and, and, and visit previous versions of their pages and, and sites, just like you would do with Git, Git and GitHub. Mm-hmm. Um, so that idea of preservation is also very important to us.
0: That's amazing. I, I really, and I mean, as a developer, I, I really appreciate it because it makes my life a heck of a lot easier. <laughs> um. Yeah, um, I, I realized that uh, we've got been going for quite a while here. Um, I was uh, I was curious if you if you just as like I guess a last kind of wrap up question um, if you had any recommendations um, for people who are are getting started. Um, I guess whether in web development or in development in general. Um, I know that you got started a lot with um, open source and contributing directly. Uh, which to me is is incredible. Like that's very um, daunting. Um, and I, I was just I was curious if you had uh, recommendations for people early on in their career. Um, you know, they they want to really uh, dig in. They might want to be in your position some someday. You know, maintaining one of the largest frameworks in the world, um, maintaining uh, a pretty impressive uh, cloud company. Um, you, do you have any, like, early on recommendations? I know that this is kind of off topic from the rest of the...
1: No, it's, it's great. I, I would say, you know, it also touches on what we just uh, talked about. is this idea of, like, you know, have a working hyperlink to something. You know, like, that's, mm-hmm. I think, one of the most important starting points. Uh, you know, put your work out there. Put your products out there. Um, obviously, I always recommend to people go to nextjs.org learn, which guides mm-hmm. you through you know, creating your first blog and just a simple few pages. Um, but the more important idea is, uh, and I'm a big, big fan of the hashtag 100 days of code, um, kind of hashtag that has become popular on Twitter, mm-hmm. where people are constantly sharing what they're working on. And a lot of them, what I noticed, I think a lot of those people are going to be great and very successful engineers and, and product builders because they're, constantly sharing interesting things that they wanted to build. Um, And I think that's very important. It's like the problem with a lot of tutorials is the tutorial has configured a goal on your behalf. So with Next.js, we try to, you know, build something in our tutorial that most people would want. Mm -hmm. But the interesting thing after you complete that tutorial is like, oh, you know, I want to build a little widget. I want to build a little tool, a little clock, a little, you know, workout tracking app or or I want to put out uh, some statistics about COVID-19 that has become a thing lately, obviously. Like mm-hmm. something that has a user focused and product focused goal. So that then you can work backwards to the technology and then almost always you will inevitably find the solution. Obviously some things, some goals you can figure are like too much out there and then you have to revisit them years later mm-hmm. uh, when you're ready. But for the most part what I, I've seen to be incredibly successful is like people that set out to make a shareable unit of work. This is why I'm such a big fan of the web because like you publish immediately, you're always publishing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and, but also that has some meaning, perhaps meaning that is relevant to your personal story, like some skill set that you already had that you know, kind of mixes well uh, with, with uh, engineering uh, some artistic endeavor. Mm-hmm. Uh, another uh, project to, to follow in this, in this sense is, I think it was called 180 Days of Code by a <laughs> uh, um, woman named Jennifer DeWalt, okay. where every day she wanted to build a quick little widget or animation or, or whatever. Like one is like TikTok, a game or um, uh, whatever, like chess or every day she had an idea for something simple to build. Okay. And all of those are still live. And this was like years ago. Now she's like a co-founder of a company. Um, and that was, became to me like, wow, that's the model. If I were to recommend to anybody that they learn to code, it's like, it shows the consistency of like, Hey, you have to stick with it. And it takes a lot of time, but it also has this a component of I can share what I'm building. It's not some folder on a project's directory on your computer that gets abandoned and, never saw the light of the day. Um, and starting very, very, very small. Another counterintuitive thing is like, it's okay to reinvent things. Mm. So, um, going back to your question about contributing to open source, it's totally fine to contribute, uh, redundant, quote unquote redundant things to open source. Like mm. you're literally cloning something that already exists and you're doing it your own way. Um, even more so than, you know, like contributing documentation. That's also very good. I started with MoTools with some documentation changes, but I always wanted, you know, I, I was pushing myself to how can I, you know, make a dent on things that are shareable and will impact a lot of people with, with the code that I write. And then open source kind of became like uh, the thing that I became obsessed about. And then obviously uh, it's still the case.
0: That's, that's really great. I love that. Thank you. Uh, that I, I, I love the, um, the, the hundred days of code, uh, hashtag because I always see, um, people just like, I like really transforming over the course of that like journey. Cause a lot of people do yeah, it. It's fascinating. I mean, there's a lot of people that do it when they're more like a little bit further along, I guess. And then actually, I think that that would be something maybe I should try and,
1: Totally. Like I've
0: to seen, to... I, I've
1: seen all kinds of people doing it. It's a really fun experiment.
0: Yeah. I mean, it is really interesting. I, I can imagine it pushes uh, your level of creativity because at some point you're going to totally. reach a day where you just, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you very much, uh, Guillermo. Um, thank you so much for having me. Do you have uh, anything that you might want to shout out?
1: <laughs> yeah. So uh, by the time the podcast comes out, obviously I think, uh, Next.js, uh, the newest release with uh, React Refresh will already have been out is Next.js 9.4. But uh, what I'll call out about that release is, uh, especially if you take the Next.js dot slash learn tutorial with it, is it's just very very pleasant, snappy, um, real time local development, and it just uh, it, it it's uh, it's quite a, an interesting feat. Uh, it fixes a lot of interesting issues that have sort of plagued the React world for a while, like really good error messages, really good stack traces, um, it's approaching perfection. Uh, there's a few little things that we're uh, working together with the React team on exposing from the guts of React mm-hmm. to get that to a, a level of perfection um, or close to perfection. But uh, yeah, we're really proud of it and uh, it's, um, uh, give it a shot. Awesome.
2: Yeah, I'm going to check it out later this week. I'm really looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you.